Duluth and beyond. Hello and welcome. This is Connor Schwacke bringing you a very special episode of Cooler by the Lake. Our very first. And boy, do we have a bombshell to kick it off with. Recently, our little slice of Duluth was graced by Taylor Brorby, author of books such as Fracture, essays, poems, and stories on fracking in America, and most recently, his memoir, Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. I was dispatched by the producers to go hang out with him while he was on campus, and let me tell you, it was a privilege. Here's what we've got lined up for you. First, Taylor gives a presentation, giving some background on who he is as a writer, and he reads a section from Boys in Oil. Then, in part two, an interview with Taylor, one writer to another, and finally, a discussion on poetry and prose between Taylor and some poets from UND's Literary Guild. Now, when my lovely secretary, Sierra, delivered the letter from the producers telling me I was going to go meet with an author in the Literary Guild, to tell you the truth, I had no idea what to expect. I had never heard of a Taylor Brorby, and I thought guilds were something from Elder Scrolls. When I arrived on campus the following day and wandered my way to the English department, I was greeted by a cheerful red-headed guy. Very much the image of a young author and professor. But behind his quirky exterior, there's an unmistakable air of having weathered a lot of life, one that hasn't always been good. And behind his mask, there's a pretty sweet mustache, but that's not really relevant right now. What really matters is that Taylor Brorby isn't some blue-haired Twitterist come from L.A. to lecture us Midwestern yokels. Not at all. In fact, he grew up in small-town, rural North Dakota, in a family with a long history working in the coal industry. But he was an outcast from the community he grew up in, because he's very much opposed to fossil fuels, and he's a gay man. But instead of becoming a disenfranchised and bitter cynic, he's humble, cordial to his opposition, and all-around good-humored. And he uses his experiences to fuel his art. He's exactly the type of artist-activist I believe we need more of in the world if we're going to make positive changes, and there's a lot you can learn from him. This is Taylor Brorby discussing and reading Boys in Oil. Please join me in welcoming Taylor Brorby to our campus. Can you all hear me all right if I project like this? If I leave my glasses on, I get a little foggy, so you all are sufficiently murky to me right now, which is right where I want you. I hope we're going to have a good time on our harbor cruise here today. Just to give you a foretaste of the feast to come and what we're serving, it'll be about 40 minutes, I imagine, of me yammering at you in ways that I hope haunt you and disturb you and maybe fire you up. I love a little controversy if we can have that. All right, shall we begin? Let's begin. I grew up swimming in a lake that never freezes in south central North Dakota. Every lake should freeze in North Dakota if you haven't heard, but Nelson Lake water, a man-made reservoir, the water of it was used to cool the coal-fired turbine engines of the power plant, Minkota Power, where my mother spent the entirety of her career. It was fed coal by Bokal Noonan, the coal mine where my grandpa Brorby spent the entirety of his career. I'm the fourth generation in my fossil fuel family. It originates with my great-grandfather, and somehow my family got a gay, crunchy granola environmentalist out of the deal. So 
go figure. One has to be a writer in that context, I guess. But Cole fed my family. It put bread on the table. It paid for my saxophone lessons. It's an incredible product that we know we have to get off of as soon as possible, much less the oil that's being extracted from North Dakota. But where I want to take you later today is back to my home power plant, because the habitability of the planet right now, if you haven't heard, depends on Minkota Power and a proposed project called Project Tundra, which if you haven't seen it, you can look it up later in your free time, and how the technological revolution that might very well be coming very soon will impact every state in the nation, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well here. But I want to give you a little rationale about why I wrote the book. But I'm, you know, at the ripe old age of nearly 35 in about a month and a half. I'm getting older, fatter, and tired, and my, you know, ideas for a writer, where do they come from? Who knows? You look at bookshelves, and if you've been like me, you often look around and go, why the hell doesn't a book about growing up gay in the American West or on the northern Great Plains exist, at least at a certain level? It's not that my book is the first, but it's one of the first. And we're in 2022, if you haven't heard. That's a little disturbing. Because if we were to do a quiz of the audience, and I would say, name a famous piece of LGBTQ literature from the American West, you'd probably say Brokeback Mountain, a 28-page horrific short story, which feels more like fiction to my lived experience. Beautiful sentences, well-rendered, of course. Annie Prue is a gift to us all, if you haven't read her recently. It's not an incredible story because it's a rather common story, at least if you're gay in rural America. I mean, the test for you all that I would like to suggest us thinking about together is think of small towns you've driven through. It can be in the Iron Range, it can be in Kansas, it can be in Mississippi or wherever. If you're a man like me and you go on a date with your boyfriend, in how many of those towns could I safely put my hand on my boy toy's thigh and not worry about much less anything being said to us? I mean, I imagine much worse things happening. I think that's the state of what it means to be queer in America right now. You all know this. We live in very dangerously divided times. And in times where people have been given permission not only to heckle, but to also enact violence against people that they have somehow determined deserve violence to be enacted on them, whether it's through their skin color, their religious identity, their sexual orientation. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But in dangerous times, I think we need stories that buoy us. It's not that my story is necessarily even that much of a hopeful story. But I am telling you that in the bookshelves that I looked at growing up, looking for someone that seemed to be similar to me, I was looking for a book in a particular bioregion that did not exist. I grew up with cowboys and Indians, you know, the famous George Armstrong Custer, but everybody forgot to tell me that he was, you know, a little light in his loafers too. He perfumed his hair and he wore, you know, purple leather kid riding gloves. That's an incredible story of a horrific man who, you know, 60 miles south of where I grew up, went west and had the worst day of his life. But I never got those subtle stories. I got very militant 
stories about what it meant to be a man in a particular region. Because in this county I grew up in, if you were a man, here were your job options if you didn't own land and could be a rancher or a farmer. It was that you could be a coal miner or you could work in the coal-fired power plant. That's what we call a company town. I didn't know that growing up. I thought company towns were in West Virginia where other coal mining was happening. But this is the plight of South Central North Dakota. And just to bring you into a little history lesson too, if you've forgotten, North Dakota is the testing ground for the country's worst ideas. So if you study your North Dakota history or what's currently happening there, don't worry, it's coming to a state near you relatively soon. Here's the brief list, the genocide of Native Americans and then further destruction through the damming of the Missouri River to target agricultural river bottom lands of the Mandan, Hadats, and Arikara to take away more land. To the east, close to Minnesota, the Red River Valley is a wonderful monoculture. We're all addicted to sugar beets. We love our sugar in America. The topsoil of the Red River Valley is blowing away. My home county is strip coal mining. To the west, as you all know, is the Bakken oil boom and the plundering of 6,000 uh, feet underground. In the northern third tier, in case you've forgotten, had North Dakota seceded at the height of the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s, it would have been the third most powerful nuclear nation because farmers gave over their farmland to plunge the prairie with Minutemen missile silos, that is the nuclear warheads aiming across the Arctic ice cap towards Russia. And now today we have carbon capture and storage, which will be tested at Minkota Power in my home county, which we'll get to a little later. But North Dakota then, from my perspective, is the story of destruction. As I write in my book, everything leaves North Dakota full and comes back empty. That is a bad story. It is a bad story to grow up in. It's a story that breaks people. And to bring you a little bit into that, I'm not going to read too long, but Let's go to center together. Maybe some of you have grown up in a town like this. Center is a place where people only end up. Sockton, South Central North Dakota, located in the middle of Oliver County, center is a stone throw from the 100th meridian, the rod of aridity that cleaves America between the luscious greens of the east and the mottled browns of the west. My hometown is where great trapeziums of buttes begin to break against the wash of sky. It's the small county seat and the only incorporated town. Center is where farmers begin to get supplanted by ranchers. Fields flow into mines. It's where dust kicks up. Center is an ecotone, a transitory region of change as the town motto reminds visitors, it's better in center. There is no stoplight in center, no grocery store. Such necessities as milk, hot stuff, pizza, and two liter bottles of Coke are purchased at the corner stop, the one gas station in the county. When I was small growing up in a trailer house on the south side of center, it took me all of 10 minutes to pedal my bicycle across town to Grandpa and Grandma Brorby's. I went to the one school in the county with the same 22 other students in my grade, a lopsided division of six girls and 16 other boys. 
their two bars, a bank, a courthouse, and the small coal country community health center on center's main street. There are three churches, but not even a motel. As a child, though, my world didn't feel small. I played baseball and spent my afternoons with Grandpa Hudson Bueller fishing for bluegills or picking tart choke cherries. I wandered the grassy banks of the small Square Butte Creek, a squiggly stream that eventually empties into the wide Missouri River, looking for muskrat, heron, or beaver. Sometimes I'd spot a coyote loping in the distance. The prairie I grew up on teaches you to notice, to pay attention. The yoke of the sun as it slides across the dome of sky, streaking the world orange and indigo. The swish of grass in the afternoon breeze. The screech of a grackle. During the golden hour on the prairie, the North Dakota palette reveals the subtle differences between ochre and umber and sienna. In North Dakota can be biblical in terms of weather. Hailstones hurl from the sky. Rain floods fields. Tornadoes rip across the hills. Blizzards kill cattle, heat chars crops. To the west of center, a large drag line lumbers on as it breaks the soil, ripping lignite coal from underground. The men in center fill the pews on Sunday and on Monday are back at the mine or the power plant, digging in the ground, heaving coal into large boilers, sending electricity to eastern North Dakota and western Minnesota. The men call Oliver County God's country, a land filled with ring-neck pheasants, deer, red-winged blackbirds. It's Eden. It's brimming. It's full of life. But each Monday and every day after, the men stumble into the two bars. Their suited hands grip cold beer, warm whiskey. Each year, North Dakota ranks first in binge drinking. High schoolers sneak bottles to hidden bonfire parties. Someone shoots off the road, is memorialized by a flowered wreath, if they were nice, a crude wooden cross on a cottonwood tree on Highway 25 just before crossing the county line. Drinking is a way to numb the pain, the dissonance, the sound of the drag line, the rumble of the boiler, the blasphemy of the work that lies ahead. The story of North Dakota is then the story of self-destruction. Everything leaves North Dakota full and comes back empty. The only way I've understood my home is by getting out, escaping its crushing weight, watching the destruction now from the outside. In childhood, when I escaped to the hills with my tackle box and drawing paper, I told no friends. I kept it a secret like a coal burning in my gut. Boys liked playing Smear the Queer, King of the Hill, and Cowboys and Indians. I played too to fit in, hurled my body against other small boned bodies atop lumpy snow mounds. I was reminded by my father that Brorbies never tap out. But the prairie I escaped to was a supple whirlwind of grass tilting in the wind, a symphony of sage-grouse song, Beaver tails slapped the water. I would cast spoons for northern pike in the Square Butte Creek. When the casting became boring, I pulled out my sketchbook and pencils and traced the bend of the creek against the white paper. I tried to create the world I wanted rather than the world as it was.
a world of broken lignite and all too often broken people. On the playground, I asked friends to play tag or an imaginary game of pirates. Instead, the other boys sized one another up, divided into two lines, and threw footballs. They ran back and forth across the asphalt playground, slammed the ball hard against the ground when they scored a touchdown. I watched from a distance, wondering where I fit in to the place I lived. I still cringe when I say I played with girls since I was often called a girl because I wanted to create my own games. I wanted room for my imagination. Throughout elementary school on Halloween, those boys dressed like police officers, firefighters, and football players. I dressed not as Barbie, but as Dracula, or a wizard, or a pirate. Even then, I wanted a larger world. My classmates played a preconceived game in a world that was preordained for them. Chase a ball under Friday night lights, grow into men who dig coal from the ground, save for the Mexican cruise you've always wanted, retire when your body begins to break. There was something, too, I craved in that landscape, something soft, something I couldn't see in the human-made world. So I headed for the hills where badgers roamed, where pheasants tucked into marshy grass. There was diversity to the natural world that I could not find in my hometown. He's a dreamer. He's not a hard worker. He doesn't want to play football. And that's part of what I think I want to bring to you today is Prairie as the late Minnesota writer Paul Gruco that I worry people aren't reading enough of who sadly killed himself just north of here in the early 2000s in two harbors. He says in Grassroots, the universe of home, a hundred acres of prairie can support over 3,000 species, uh, excuse me, not a hundred acres, a hundred yards, a hundred yards of prairie can support over 3,000 species of insect alone. It's just insect. Nature, as I've said to some of you in our conversations, particularly to students, nature models diversity. One of the great insults in the time that we're alive right now, I would say, especially in rural America, since it's been sold a short list of goods, is rural America is only good for what can be taken from it. Coal, oil, iron, trees, and then what's left? Destruction, broken people. It's a monoculture, depending on the region we're talking about. You can go south of here to Iowa. It's the largest clear cut on the continent. Iowa looks nothing like what it's supposed to. It's now all tall green and low green, corn and soybeans. There is no tall grass prairie in Iowa anymore. It's tiled, it's plundered. What does this do? My half-baked theory is it creates conditions that are dangerous for most everyone who live there, even if you supposedly fit in. Otherwise, why would North Dakota be filled with binge drinkers? It must be hard to spend decades watching God's country get plundered, or a place that you supposedly love if you're like my grandpa, knowing that for 50 years you ruined the place where your grandson was growing up. That is a hard weight to bear in a culture that doesn't believe in going to therapy, but instead to, you know, 
lackluster Lutheran potlucks like I grew up going to with, you know, shaved carrots suspended in green jello and clarified coffee. And if you're too young for clarified coffee, you could consider yourself lucky, my goodness. That's why I glow green under black lights and stuff. But there's a world out there that I think nature models to us, a story of the way things could be if only the systems we lived under didn't pit us against each other. It was so exceedingly frustrating to me going to graduate school in Iowa be afraid if I come and live in Duluth at some later time because large-scale environmental destruction follows me. I had lived in the Bakken oil boom in 2014 and then I thought, oh, I'm going to go to grad school, I'm going to get paid to write, I'm going to have time to think about what the hell am I doing with my life. And then that first semester, the country's largest pipeline was announced that it would be coming through the county where I was living. You might have heard it, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so all of a sudden, I was on a whirlwind tour of colleges around the state to public libraries to tell them about Bakken oil and what it did to farmland in particular. As part of the pipeline wars in Iowa when Standing Rock was getting you know, shot with cold water and tear gas and things like this while farmland was being taken in Iowa through eminent domain. I was one of the first people in Iowa to get arrested over the Dakota Access Pipeline with 29 other people, which is in this book. And I had tried what I thought was my best to write op-eds, to get around and try to raise a ruckus about what Bakken oil does to a landscape, what it does by building in a system of extractive economies, not only for people, but at a time where we know the ozone layer is compromised, where, as we all know, weather is changing rapidly and is becoming more volatile. And I thought I needed some way of standing up to something. And just to tell you all, being arrested is not to be taken and lightly. If you can avoid it, I would really recommend not doing it. It's the most expensive six-hour vacation in the Boone County Jail I've ever spent. But I thought I needed to put my body on the line so that when my nephews are older and they inevitably ask me, Uncle Taylor, why didn't you do everything you could to try and stop this? I had a better answer than I don't know. Also selfishly, I mean, just in true confession, there's that noble reason. I'm also a selfish writer. I know when I have a good story, I think it's a great story. If you're like a fourth-generation fossil fuel baby, to be like deuces, Brorbies, and then you just get arrested over it, you know. I had to pay, obviously, but still, it just felt so... I come from a family of supposed patriots, and I thought, well, I want to be a patriot who protects water and protects the prairie and protects, you know, wide open sky from destruction under the system that pits people against each other. Because when there was public testimony in Iowa over the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know who wasn't there? The pipeline company. And the people who were testifying were landowners or environmentalists against union workers. It's peasants. It's postmodern feudal Europe. You have the peasants bicker against each other while the king wins no matter what because the king has a great tool called eminent domain where he still gets to take your land, still gets to build the pipeline, still gets his pocketbook lined with profit. You all know this. I'm just giving you a sort of, you know, 
fantastic, tumultuous harbor cruise of these stories that we're seeing and trying to put them before you in a very quick manner because I think it's so easy in the time we're living in to feel like our ideas, our issues are isolated. And I think they're so interlinked. How is it that, you know, a little gay boy who loves the prairie has written a book about it? If people really love the prairie the way I see it, I don't think they would destroy it. I don't think they would be complicit in that. I think they would vote differently. I think they would stand up together and realize that, you know, the prairie thrives in community. It is simply, as you all know, interlinked roots joined together to keep this precious thing called soil in place. But we have this huge obsession with trying to destroy it, with destroying other landscapes. You know, if you like mountains, forget it. We're not going to get along. I hate mountains. You know, they get in the way of the view. You know, trees, forget it, all these things. It's the prairie. It's intimidating. It's humbling. It's a place that you have to get down on your knees to understand it. And I think that's very threatening to our culture. So we tile it, we plow it, we plunge it with pipe. We haven't sufficiently found a way to destroy it, but in that process, we have found a way to destroy people. People that are victims of a system that says, you know, eventually cancer is probably coming to you if you live near an extractive site. So hopefully you're paying, you know, enough into your retirement that compound interest will allow you when cancer comes for you to still financially survive. Because these corporations are not on your side. You have to hope that there are resources at hand. And this is the story that I don't think is getting out there from North Dakota, because if you haven't heard, it's the least visited state in the country. It is what we call flyover country, which is an insult to its beauty, to the ideas that I think are in that landscape. And so that's part of what's in my book. You also get a you know, fantastic little gay boy who gets his fingernails painted by his grandma and things like this. And you know, there's huge family drama, but it's really more that I want to show you the landscape I grew up in in this way because I don't think much of America views the prairie as remarkable. And I view it as transcendent, as a model to get us out of some of the pickles that we're in, if only we would pay attention. It seems that we were human beings in my childhood who you know, spent all our time doing things rather than sitting in grass and, and thinking about what the birds were saying and what the wind was whispering. And so in this book, if you read it, just to give you a reader's tip too, I've written it to sound like the prairie. There's a lot of S sounds in this book, which is how the prairie whispers to me and every once in a while you get a CK word, which to me is what pheasants sound like. I've tried my level best to write what I consider the symphony of the place I grew up because for some reason I think music is about the only savior we have at this point. And if you can sing sentences well, if you can write musically, maybe there's a little truth. It's why we love slam poetry. It's why we love listening to people sing notes we didn't imagine existed. And I think if we have that in literature, maybe there's a key to some of the things that we need to be thinking about during this complicated time. Thank you so much for bringing me to UMD. This has been such a joy for me. So thanks again. And that wraps up part one of the Taylor Brorby special and our very first episode. This is where I'd say stay cool or something, but that would be cheesy. And we're not Wisconsin. We're Duluth. So I'll just sign off now. 
no need for some prolonged, long-winded or otherwise drawn-out Minnesota goodbye. Or anything like that. Well, tune in next time for part two, where I interview Taylor and he sits down to chat with a literary gum. We here at Cooler by the Lake thank you for listening and hope you gain something while lending us your ear. 